Go ahead and take your Bibles and go back to that letter, that short little letter towards the end of the New Testament named Jude. We already read the text this morning, so I won't do that now. But let me encourage you throughout the week, uh, read through this short letter, and uh, you'll see there's just a lot here. As I said earlier, this is going to be, this first sermon, there's going to be a little bit more just kind of background information about the book. Uh, That way there, we can kind of use as a a launching pad in in, in future sermons. Let me give you an idea where we're going to be going in this. The overview of the series, if I was going to put like a theme, I would say it's fight for the faith. Okay, we're going to get into that a little bit. But uh, what Jude wants his readers to understand, and these are people who are uh, believers in Christ, and what Jude wants them to understand is that they are in a battle. They are in a war, and they need to fight for the faith. And you and I are in a battle. You and I are in a fight just as well, and we need to fight for the faith. I'm going to break it up in the four sermons, as you can see there. Uh, this week, today, it's a letter to warn believers. It's going to be verses 1 through 4. And then next week, we'll talk about how it's a letter to remind believers. as verses 5 through 19. And then a letter to instruct believers, verses 20 through 23. And then the last sermon uh, will be the last two verses, uh, the benediction or the doxology that is found in this book. And that's going to be a letter to encourage believers. So that's kind of where we're going. Uh, to give you a a, a quick overview uh, where we're going to be in this series uh, as we go through the book. But first, let's just dive in. Let's talk about the author. This book was actually written by a pretty humble author. Uh, we don't know a ton about Jude. Um, and it's actually, there were several people by the name of Jude or Judas uh, throughout the scriptures. But uh, by the way he describes himself in verse 1, we can, uh, uh, we can definitely get, get a good understanding about who he is. The first thing that you'll notice when he says in verse 1, he, he says that Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, okay? Now, we tend to kind of read over those words sometimes. And Paul uses this word, talks about a servant. Uh, some translations you may have, you may see bond servant there in your translation. Um, uh, this is a, a translation that just uses the word servant. The word behind this is the idea actually for the word slave, okay? And here's what it means. The idea is it's a, a, it's a person who is legally owned by someone else and whose entire livelihood and purpose was determined by their master. So that's how you would define this term servant or slave in this text here. It's interesting to me that as Jude is beginning his, his letter and he, he's describing himself, this is the word that he wants people to know. He wants people to know that this is who he is, that he is a slave or a servant of Jesus Christ. And when we look at the definition as I just read it to you, he is basically saying, my whole identity is wrapped up in Jesus Christ. He, he's not just saying, you know, I, I'm... I want someone to kind of help this guy out a little bit for a little time or a few hours a week. It's a part-time deal that I'm, I'm helping Jesus out in, in, his, in his mission. He's saying there when he calls himself a servant, it's easy for us to kind of gloss over that and, and not get the full 
impact of what he is saying here, but he is saying that his entire livelihood and purpose was determined by Jesus Christ. And I, you know, thinking to myself, if I was asked to describe myself, what words would I use? Uh, if you were to ask to describe yourself, and maybe sometimes you are asked to do that, and, and you know, you, someone is, is um, meeting you for the first time, there's pretty typical questions that people ask. One of them is, you know, what do you do for a living and things like that. But very few of us would use even our occupation or vocation as our sole source of identity. In fact, probably many of us would actually resist that. But Jude here, he's saying that what he wants, when he has the opportunity to describe himself, he says, I'm a slave of Jesus Christ. My whole identity is wrapped up in him. And so what is your identity? What is my identity? And as I was reading through this week, these questions were going through my mind. I was thinking to myself, well, what is my core identity? And what is it that I want people to know about me? Or what is it that I aspire to be? I pray that it'd be like Jude here, a servant, a slave, a bondservant of Jesus Christ. So we see his humility kind of come through with this idea of the fact that he wants to describe himself as a servant, but also notice he also describes himself in another way. He says, a servant of Jesus Christ, and then what else does he describe himself? You see the text in front of you, go ahead and tell me. What, what else does he say? He's what? He's a brother, a brother of James, right? Okay. Now, um, you do some digging here, and this is really interesting. Um, this is probably most likely the James that is uh, prominent in the book of Acts, okay? Jerusalem Council, Acts 15, uh, a pillar in the church, okay? And so he identifies himself as the brother of James here. That's okay, that's good. But what do we know about James, according to the scriptures? He, what was that? Yeah, he's the half-brother of Jesus Christ. You know, dad's side, not mom's side, okay? <laughs> All right? Um, he's the half-brother of Christ. So what does that mean Jude is then? He's also the half-brother of Jesus Christ. But yeah, he doesn't, he doesn't put that. Now, if it were me, and I, I have a, a, a kind of a blood relationship to Jesus, that's going on my LinkedIn profile, okay? <laughs> All right? You know, where did you study? I went to this seminary. By the way, Jesus is my half-brother, <laughs> okay? That, that's the, I would be putting that out there, but, but he doesn't do that, and there's a, several reasons probably for that. We, we can't know 100% all the reasons, but I think one of the reasons would be because Jesus, when he ascended, a lot of the earthly relationals, that that got trumped by the spiritual relationships, okay? But more than that, it was that Jude was saying, that's not my, my, my identity with Jesus. My primary identity with Jesus is the fact that we shared a biological father, uh, mother, um, you know, and, and fa- uh, yeah, mother. And uh, he says, you know, that, that's, that's, Jesus is my savior. 
I don't want people to confuse the fact that just because he's my brother, I'm somehow in a different level or different playing field. No, I'm a sinner just like everyone else, and I need to be a servant of Jesus Christ. It's very similar to Mary. You probably learned it from Mary, because remember, Mary herself, she called herself, she called Jesus my Savior and my God. And so the whole family structure was probably being taught this that just because Jesus is in the family, we are still servants of Jesus here, and that humility is coming through here. And so it's easy when we read a book like this to kind of read the greeting, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ, and brother James, to those who are called. And we kind of just keep going on with it. But you got to stop. Whenever you're looking at a book like this, you got to ask some questions of it. You got to say, well, who is this? And, and, and why is this important here? And so he didn't begin this letter by emphasizing the privilege of his brother relationship to Jesus, but he emphasized his submission to Christ's lordship. That is important. And I think instructive as well, is, is, is our submission to Christ's lordship, is that important to us? Is that a reality that is constantly in the forefront of our minds, that I am submitted to the lordship of Jesus Christ? So much so in the forefront of our minds that when someone says, who are you? That's one of the first things that comes out. You see, for Jude, it definitely was. He wanted people to know. He wanted the people he was writing to. He wanted them to know that he was subject to Jesus Christ. And so I asked the question, is submission to Christ's lordship, is that a guiding force in your life? Is submission to Christ's lordship a guiding force in your life? Something to think about today. I think these are some of the things as we're reading through a letter like this. These are the way, this is the way you study the Bible. This is the way you read the Bible. You start asking lots of questions of it. And you start saying, well, wait a minute here. What about this? And then you start applying it to yourself here. This is just the beginning. I'm kind of giving you the, the background to this so you can kind of see who is writing this so you can get his heart a little bit here. But not only do I see as we look at this, 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 the humility of the author here, I also see in addition to the servant of Jesus, a brother James, I just wrote down a spirit-led author. Now, that's kind of obvious in some ways. It's like, well, we, we've got his letter. We got it in the Bible. According to Timothy, it says that this is, it comes by the inspiration of God. So the very fact that we have the letter, of course, he's spirit-led. Okay, true. But there's another element of spirit-ledness that I want to point out here, and I'm going to get. To, we're going to talk about this later on uh, in more in a little bit more depth, not too much more, but a little bit more. And that is the fact that it's obvious from reading this letter that he changed direction. He pivots. All right? You, you, you read this. Let, let me draw your attention back to verse 3. And it says this. It says, Although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. So really, what you have in your Bible, in your lap right now, or on your phone, uh, what you have in front of you is a letter that almost didn't happen. Okay? It almost didn't happen. But at the last minute, God impressed upon Jew's heart to say, no, 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 don't write about this doctrinal treatise about salvation. You need to write urging people to contend for the faith here. And he was obedient to it. Now, what would be an easier letter to write? 
An easier letter to write would be probably the doctrinal treatise on salvation. Just theology, you write it down, here it is, this is what it's about. Is it, is it harder to warn people of error? Absolutely. Is it harder to go to someone and say, you're mistaken here, or I believe you may be making a grave error here? Those are difficult conversations to have because they're not always well-received. In fact, a lot of times they're not. But Jude, that didn't matter to Jude. Why did it matter to him? Because that was his humility coming through, because he was a servant of Jesus Christ. It wasn't about his own agenda. It was about what God wanted to be done. Now, none of us, well, I should say this. Let me, let me rephrase that. Some of us embrace change better than others, okay? Something different, some out of the ordinary, something, a change of plan at the last moment. Um, some people have an ability to kind of be really flexible and roll with that. But most of us, there's at least some point that change bothers us in some way. And here, Jude, he changes his entire plan in order to be a servant of Jesus and to benefit other people. And so I wonder, how willing are we to change our plans to benefit other people? Do you see how we can make application points all along? I'm not saying this is the main point of this, the, the text. That's not my point at all. All I'm doing is I'm just trying to reveal to you who Jude was and see how that as you see those things, you can start re- just applying some of these principles to yourself as you're reading your Bibles. And so we have a humble author. But not only do we have a humble author, there's got to be people that he's writing to. And so this was written to really an unknown congregation. There are no uh, identity points for this congregation. There's no geography markers, geographical markers at all. In fact, a lot of times if you read your Bible or read the New Testament, you know who the congregation was because it was a group of people written to a group of believers at the city of Philippi, Book of Philippians, or Colossae, Colossians. Or we know that uh, uh, letters written to individuals like Timothy, two letters, and Titus, one letter. Uh, Philemon is another one. And so there's, you know, Corinthians, the church of Corinth, and Thessalonica, Thessalonians, and so you get the point here is that a lot of times when we're reading these letters in the New Testament, we know where these people are at. We know a little bit about them. And so we can go back into history and we can kind of see some of the things that were happening during those times. And we can kind of get uh, maybe a, a profile built, if you will, of who these people are. This is not the case in the book of Jude. We really don't have any identity markers at all here. And so it's an unknown uh, congregation. So I'm sitting in my office, and I'm thinking to myself, why is that? Why isn't it that, you know, were other people they identify? Why is it? Again, I can't know for sure. But one thing that I did think of is that at least in this case, anonymity leads to universality, okay? Universality is a word. I looked it up. Okay, all right. But anonymity leads to universality, which that means is when it's anonymous like this, at least in this case, I'm not saying it's always the case, we can say much more easily how it is universally applicable to us in our current context. It can be very relevant to us. And so, you know, sometimes once in a while you'll hear someone say that the Bible's not relevant or it's just an old book and it's outdated and it's not for us. And, and, and really... It, those are people who just don't read the Bible. It is so relevant to us today. And this book is no different. 
And so as we're going through this study over the next four weeks, again, this is kind of introductory material here. Um, I'm just trying to give you a, a, a running start into as we get to the, the real true um, kind of heart of the, the, the book is beginning with next week. You get some background into this. But what do we know about them? We, we may not know their personalities and their location, but we do know something about them. In verse 1, we have um, at least three markers there. Okay, so we have three markers there. What is the first one? What, what, what do you see the first marker there for these people? What is it? Okay, sanctified is one uh, translation. Some of you may have a different word other than sanctified. Okay, beloved, all right. Anyone have, uh, let's see here, called. Do you have called, JP? Is that right? Okay, called. Yeah, sanctified, called. Yep, same word, just translated differently, okay. So we have called. We have the second one, as Tammy said, beloved. What was the last one? I, I heard it. Kept. Thank you. Thank you. Kept. All right. So we have these three markers here in, in, about these people here that they're called, they're beloved in God, uh, the Father, and kept. Uh, some of you may have for Jesus. Some of you may have by Jesus. Okay. Uh, this is, again, translational things there, which we can get into in a minute here. Again, it's easy for us to skim over who Jude is, skim over to who this is, and then even skim over in verse 2 and then kind of get into the whole heart of the letter. And I think we do that. When we do that, we do it uh, to, to our disadvantage. We're missing out on something there. Let's stop a minute and think about these words because we believe that the Bible is inspired, Okay. Second uh, Timothy chapter three in verse uh, sixteen says all scripture is given by the inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. That the man of God or the person, man, there's uh, it's encompassing of both genders. That the person of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. Okay, so we believe this about the Bible. Theologians refer to this as the verbal, it means the actual words, and plenary, which means all of them, inspiration of the word of God. So if you ever read a doctrinal statement and someone says, or a church says, we believe in the verbal, plenary, inspiration of the word of God, that's what they're talking about. They're talking about the very words and all of them. Okay, so we believe that. So if that's true, and we look here at Jude, and we say those who are called, beloved in God, kept for Jesus Christ, that wasn't just Jude filling in the blanks there. That wasn't him just kind of not thinking about these. These, these actually words are important to us. And so let's stop a minute and talk about that for just a second here. This first idea of called. Now, this is not just, if you, if you look this word up in theological dictionaries and you do word studies on this, you're going to find this is not just an invitation, okay? Like, I made an invitation to people to come to my house, our house tonight at 6 o'clock, Okay? Now, I have no power to make you come. Um, I, I suppose, you know, I could bribe you, or I suppose I could, you know, try to muscle some of you into a car and bring you over to my house or something like that. But in all reality, I have no power to make you come. But the calling's there. That's not what this is talking about. The calling that we see in the New Testament is not just the invitation, but it's also the actual ability in them actually fulfilling that calling and them actually obeying. 
And so when we see this, and we could go, and I don't have time to go through all the different references to do that. I'm just telling you that's what the word means there. And so here it is. He says, to those who are called, those who God has brought to himself, those who God has said, you have uh, 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 the knowledge we read in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, this knowledge in your heart and this belief in your soul, this faith that God has given to you, this is you. It's a beautiful thing to think about here. God called these people out of darkness and light. And so if you here are a believer in Christ today, you too were in darkness at one time. Never forget that. And particularly for those of us who ask Christ to save us at maybe a younger age, that reality is often missed in our minds. But there was a moment, if you're a believer in Jesus Christ here today, there was a moment where you were in darkness. But God called you. And God brought you out of that. And not only did he make the invitation, he says, I'm going to give you this faith. And some of you were saved later in life, and, and you can see that, that, that difference. I love talking with some of you and hearing the difference of how before Christ and after Christ, that calling. But it's also loved by God. You see that there, beloved by or in God the Father there, these are believers who have been loved by God the Father. And, uh, the, and, and, and we see that he's just reminding them of this very fact here. But so as he's getting ready to uh, give a strong warning and a, and a strong admonition to these people, he's reminding them of their position. He's reminding them of who they are. And that's important because some of them were probably being very tempted to go along with the false teaching and the, and the, uh, the, the false thinking that was happening here in this area here. And so instead of just berating them, instead of just saying, how dare you do this, he reminds them of who they are. And so some of you may be here today and you're struggling through things. And you may be having a difficult life and maybe you're having a difficult you know, spiritual attacks and, and maybe things are just going well. And so let me encourage you not just to stay the course and contend for the faith, but let me encourage you first, like Jude is telling these people, remember who you are. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, that means that he has called you out of darkness. And that also means that he has loved you. But you see, the reality is also, it cuts, the sword cuts both ways here. And on the one hand, we can be very encouraged by this, but if you're not a believer in Christ today, then that means, and I take no joy in saying this, that your soul is in darkness and you need salvation. It also says, kept for Jesus Christ there. Kept for Jesus Christ, or kept by Jesus Christ, Theologians differ on which it should be. Uh, the word could be translated either way. Um, if it's kept by Jesus Christ, that's putting the action on Jesus Christ, maintaining our salvation and maintaining the, the goodness of the gospel. If it's kept for Jesus Christ, it's a theological expression of when he's coming back. Okay, and then we will be presented blameless by Jesus to the Father. But when he comes back, he's coming for us. Um, 
good people, good theologians are on both sides of this. It doesn't really matter to me. But I think if you're going to ask, if you're curious what my opinion is, I think it's probably kept by Jesus. Because Philippians chapter 1 and verse 6 comes to mind, that he who began a good work in you will complete it until the day of Jesus Christ. And so our salvation is not being maintained by your good works and by your obedience and by your good looks, okay? (laughs) Your salvation is being maintained by Jesus Christ. And I think that's coming through here. And what Jude is doing here is he is reminding the people of these theological realities here that are called loved by God, kept for Christ. And so let me encourage you today, if you're a believer in Christ, that is also you. You have been called. You are loved by God. Loved by God. Think about that. The God who spoke this world into existence, the holy God, the God who can never even think to do something wrong, loves you. Never get over that fact, people. The minute we we just kind of get ho-hum about that reality is the minute we are sliding away from God. And so... And we're also, our salvation is not maintained by us. It's maintained by God. We're kept by God. So as we look at the beginning of this book, I want you to begin to identify with it. This is the reason why I'm taking time to do this. This isn't the main point of the book. I get that. But what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to get you to identify with these people here because then when the warnings come, it's going to feel much more fresh. It's going to feel much more personal and pertinent to us. He does a pastoral prayer in verse 2 that I want to point out before I move on to the third and final point this morning. And that is that this in verse 2, he says, May love, may, excuse me, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Again, I, I, it's easy to skim over this as if it's like some boilerplate greeting or something like that, but that's not what's happening here. I mean, he's, he's very specifically choosing these words that it's his prayer for these people. Now, a couple things come to my mind as I think about this. Number one, I think it's really cool that he tells people how he prays for them. That, we can learn from that. I think it's really neat that he shares with the people, and other, and other authors do the same thing. He says, not just I'm praying for you, but here's how I'm praying for you. As I was in my office studying for this, I, I thought to myself, I need to, I need to grow in that area. Because often I'll tell people, hey, I'm praying for you, Ben, I'm praying for you, or whatever the case may be. But how much more encouraging is it when I say, Ben, I'm praying for you, I know this move is coming up, and it's stressful. You know, that's so much more personal. And I think that could cause us to grow, continue to grow. I think God is growing us as a church family, but I think that could be another tool that God uses to even make us grow even more together. So when you interact with each other and you're telling each other that you're praying for each other and I hear that and I see people praying with one another and that's awesome, let me encourage you also to tell people specifically how you're praying for them. That's very encouraging to me. Um, I had people share with me how they were specifically praying for us when we were on vacation, and that was very helpful. So I, again, not the main point, but again, I'm trying to get you to see the, the feeling around this letter here. And so then as we get into the main part of it next week, we can have a good understanding of what's going on here. But what does he ask for? He asks for mercy which is really the foundation of any relationship with God. And he wants God's mercy to be multiplied to them. And he wants them to live in the reality of God's mercy. And so that they understand that the life and the, and the very breath that they have is actually a gift from God, is actually a merciful gift from God. 
That the life that you enjoy right now is a mercy gift. It's a grace gift, but it's also mercy. It's, it's, it's because we deserve something completely different than what we have. Let's be honest about that fact. Let's think about that. Let's embrace that fact, not just academically assent to it. Let's embrace the fact internally that we definitely are not getting what we deserve. Because what we deserve is judgment and separation. But may mercy be multiplied to you. He says, I want you to understand. I want you to revel in God's mercy. And I want you to understand that. Why would he want them to revel in God's mercy? Because the only reaction to doing that is worship of Jesus Christ. The only way for us to respond adequately or appropriately to the idea of mercy is worship. And so the more you revel in mercy, the more you say, God is merciful to us, we cut out complaining, we cut out grumbling, we cut out uh, uh, entitlement, all sorts of things are reaction to reveling in mercy. And so when he says, I want mercy to be multiplied to you, this is what he's getting at. And not just mercy, but he also says peace. And this is really a result of God's mercy, is that we actually can have peace with God. Have you ever had a relationship go sideways? And, and it was just eating you alive and eating you alive and, and, and you apologized and, and then there's forgiveness and there's that, that feeling of we're okay. How many of you said to maybe a spouse even or a coworker or someone like, are we okay? Are we good? You know? Uh, Anuki said that to me. I said that to her. You know, we're, we're you know, maybe it's uh, uh, things aren't going well in the communication area or something like that. And and I'm sorry. Okay, are, are we good? Yeah, we're good. And there's a there's a settled just okay, good. Imagine that, and then I'll put in the category God there. I mean, we we were we were facing God's wrath. And he would have been just to pour his wrath out on us. We have to believe that. We have to know that because that's what the Bible teaches, okay? Every one of us here deserves God's wrath. But if you believe in Jesus Christ, then you have peace with God. Don't miss that. Don't, I think for those of us who, who have been in church a long time or we read the Bibles a lot or, or whatever, it's just easy to miss this and or to kind of take it for granted. Renew, ask God to help you recapture the wonder of this, would you? Ask God to help you recapture the wonder of peace with him. The fact that a God who has to judge sin is now at peace with a sinner because of Jesus. And Jude wants him to understand this, Okay. And then may love be multiplied. This is a manifestation of peace and mercy. As we have mercy and as we have peace and we revel in that, the only thing we can do is love. We can love our Savior and we can love other people. All of a sudden, I'm not upset with other people because I just see myself as a recipient of mercy. Why would I be thinking I'm better than someone else if I see myself as simply a recipient of mercy? 
and I am enjoying peace with God. No longer am I looking down on people. I am loving people. I'm loving God. So this is, this is what he wants. This is the pastoral prayer. And so, again, as we're kind of taking a slong, but st- uh, a slong, <laughs> that was slow and long put together there, okay? So as we're doing a long and slow uh, inter- you know, run into this study here, these are things that he's praying for, for these people. So let's, let's ta- stop and take a second here and think about this. Do you pray for other people like this? Okay. Or the people that you do pray for, how are you praying for them? Think about the difference of praying, God, please be with Jim, versus God, may Jim know your peace in this moment. You know, we use phrases in our prayers. I'm not trying to pick on anyone or anything or something like that. I do it too. So I tell you, I've told you this a million times. I preach sermons that I need to hear. And so we've got to be thoughtful in how we pray for other people here. You know, when I say be with Jim, I kind of think maybe some God, sometimes God just chuckles a little bit. Omnipresent, <laughs> you know, got that one, <laughs> you know. All right, I'm there. What does that mean? And again, I'm not making fun of anyone that uses that. Please don't take it that way. But I'm trying to just encourage us to be real thoughtful. I say, you know, please may the peace of God rule his heart today. May he, may he revel in the mercy of God upon his life. That's much more meaningful and much more relational. And so let me encourage us as we pray for each other to do that. And then tell each other. Jim, I was praying for you today. I was praying that God's peace would be in your heart. You know, we're, we're scared to do that. We don't know how they're going to respond. But I don't know of anyone, particularly in this room, that if I went up to you, if I went up to Jim and said, hey, I'm praying that you just really appreciate God's mercy and peace, I don't think Jim would be like, please don't do that. <laughs> you know? You know, he probably would come back with some sort of joke, knowing who Jim is, okay? But he would appreciate it. You would appreciate it. And let me encourage us as we're growing to minister to each other, this is a way we can do this, is being very specific and thoughtful in our prayers towards, uh, for each other. And so I appreciate how the New Testament authors told the people how they were praying for each other. Let's, let's try to grow in that area. Well, I have one last point in the last couple of minutes here. I just, it, it's not going to take very long. I just want to, this is getting into the, uh, the main reason for the letter here. So verse three, it says, beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. This was written to address a pressing need, okay? I'm introducing it this week in the, in the conclusion of this message, and then we'll dive into it a little bit more next week at our picnic. Um, again, as I said before, the original intent was a doctrinal treatise on the idea of salvation, he had to change the direction into a warning about ungodly people influencing the church. Again, I'm just going to give you some uh, uh, introductory ideas about this. It says, for certain people, verse 4, have crept in unnoticed. It's interesting to me, the word uses there, that he, they crept in unnoticed there. People stopped paying attention somewhere along the way. And so, 
people with uh, wrong ideas, wrong theological ideas or whatever were coming into their assembly and radically affecting the belief system of that church. And it was away from God. It was away from understanding, as we're going to see in a few minutes, away from a biblical understanding of grace and a biblical understanding of who Jesus was. Their ideas were moving people away from this, and he says they've crept in. And, and when I started thinking about this, it's the idea of like, oh, it's, as I study this, the idea of almost smuggled in, okay? And so somewhere along the line, people stopped paying attention to what other people were saying. Now, the majority of that responsibility falls on the leaders. Leaders of this congregation, wherever it was, should have been much more vigilant, and they dropped the ball there. But it's also responsibility of the congregation. The congregation needs to be saying, wait a minute here. This doesn't match up with what the apostles were teaching us. This doesn't match up with, with what we have, our records, what we have of our Bibles to this point in history. This doesn't match up. But along the way, people stopped caring. Along the way, people stopped paying attention. And so what had happened was is that people needed to be paying, that they, what should have happened was that people should have been paying attention and should have been addressing this, but then it got to the point where radical surgery needed to happen. So when I say that people should have been paying attention, what I don't want you to think is, I don't want you to think like a gatekeeper mentality here, okay? Like this is not, we don't have like, you know, a, a theological security team in our church, okay? It's like a new ministry, you know, and so you're going to be scouring Facebook and you're going to be scouring every conversation and listening in on people. And if they say something borderline wrong, you need to pounce on them. And you say, you know, untruth. <laughs> you know, that's, that, I don't want you to think that, Okay. Then that's not what, what, what should have happened there. But what should have happened was inquiry, okay? So you want to think about inquiry. Does this match with Scripture? And so as, and maybe a teacher got up and started teaching something. Immediately, it should have been, does that match with Scripture here? And so this is the reason why every Sunday I say, open your Bibles too, okay? Because I want you looking at the text, I want you looking at the scriptures. And, and I've said this before. If what I'm saying doesn't match with the scriptures, go with the scriptures, okay? I'd appreciate a conversation so I know either I misspoke or maybe there's misunderstanding or I was wrong and I need to repent. But the point is, is that there's got to be inquiry. There's got to be thoughts back and forth about this. doesn't match with scripture, but in order to able to answer that question, you have to be reading your Bible. You have to have an understanding of Scripture. And so what was happening along the way here is that I think people just stopped. They got comfortable. They didn't ask questions anymore. And then pretty soon, things happening in, in theological error was coming at them full tilt. And it was, it was bad. But see, the problem is, is this difficult, inquiry is difficult, particularly for us today. If we're going to make this relevant today, let me just say this, is that, you know, our culture hates inquiry. They hate inquiry. Our culture just wants individual acceptance and affirmation, not inquiry. However, inquiry is crucial to determining truth. And so we want to talk with one another. We need to ask people questions. And so when you're hearing other people, even at work and stuff, making statements about facts and things like that, it's really difficult in today's culture to ask questions without coming across as confrontational. I get that. But we've got to find a way to do it. We've got to find a way to have conversations with people 
and ask questions about thinking because what is happening, I'm scared of what's happening, is that conversation is being shut down more and more and more and more. And what happens is, is as you get used to that in your workplace, okay, where you're not going to be challenging thoughts any longer and opinions any longer, that's going to come into the church eventually. We're going to get so used to not challenging things and not wanting to offend anyone that we're not going to ask questions anymore. So I'm just saying, ask the questions. Find a loving way to do it, a gracious way to do it. You don't have to be mean. You don't have to be arrogant. You don't have to be harsh. But we do have to ask questions. And so if there's something that you don't understand, if I'm preaching a message and there's something you don't understand, don't just just say, oh, okay, yeah, well, whatever. No, ask the question. Nice, respectful way. We'll have a great dialogue about it. But uh, I'm, I'm afraid because of our culture and the way it's going in terms of don't ask questions, you just need to accept it, that's eventually going to find its way into the church. And so as like Jude, I'm saying, don't let this creep in, okay? Let's ask questions of each other in a loving, gracious way. So if people are, are, are saying things that don't seem to match with Scripture, you need, to, you need to lovingly challenge them on that. And that's difficult. It's really difficult. And we'll probably talk about it a little bit more as, as the study goes on. I'm going to finish with this. It says that these are people, in verse 5, that they crept in and noticed they're ungodly people. At the end, it says they pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only master, Lord Jesus Christ. Basically, they were treating God's gracious acceptance of sinners as excuse for sinful lifestyles. And before we get too critical of them, we see this today as well. God has clear instructions in Scripture about what we should be doing and how we should be living, and yet we excuse that and we give ourselves passes for a myriad of reasons. You know, uh, something as simple as like church attendance or something like that. We know that God has said, let's meet together and so much more as we see the day approaching. We only have one meeting point at our church and it's something I've long kind of lamented. We were talking about this just the other night of, of I think we just need more meeting points and somehow, and I'm not sure how to do that. But we need to prioritize that. And I get vacations and all that. Yeah, wonderful. And there's sickness. And I, I mean, I get it. There's reasons not to be at church. But there are a lot of times where we make the excuse of not being in church or not reading our Bibles or not having a conversation with someone that God has clearly said, if someone's offended you, you go to that person. And we don't do it because we're afraid. We're getting borderline doing the exact same thing these people are doing to saying, but God's gracious, he loves me, I'm accepted in him, that's all true, but we still need to obey. And we're afraid of saying, well, I don't want to become legalistic, or I don't want to become, you know, thinking that, uh, you know, um, if, uh, if, if you miss a church service, I'm losing my salvation. No one's saying that. But what I am saying is that we need to obey. We need to live in grace. Um, they denied Jesus in the process. He saved people. He saves people to transform them. And they were just simply adding Jesus to the list. And so people just living as they wanted and claiming God's grace. If we do that, that's denying Jesus' mission. And that's why they were denying Jesus. So the practical application is, are we doing this? Are we justifying spiritual sluggishness and apathy because we are believers? Well, I'm a believer in Jesus. 
but yet we're allowing spiritual sluggishness and apathy into our lives? Are we justifying a lack of spiritual disciplines because we don't want to be legalistic? Are we justifying a lack of disciple-making with the excuse of busyness? You see, to do so is really to deny Jesus because it's denying his mission and what he has called us to do. He said, I am going to transform you. Yes, it's true. God accepts people. And he accepts sinners, and we sing of that, and it's wonderful. But he doesn't do that just to leave you the way you are. He does it to transform you. So you got to look at your life, and you got to see, do you see a transforming work of Christ in your life? That is the work of Christ in your life. Well, let me conclude. Jude wrote this letter to warn Christians. So first, let this be a warning to us that that there are plenty of people who are attempting to influence your thinking that will lead you away from Christ and not towards him. So be vigilant on that. Ask the questions. The second thing is, don't be that person that's influencing people wrongly as well. Um, I, I think about this a lot as myself because, I mean, I have the opportunity, God's given me the opportunity to stand in front of people uh, on a consistent basis and teach, and that is something that we need to take very seriously. James chapter 3, verse 1 says, don't, don't rush to become a teacher because there's a stricter judgment. And so when I say don't be that person, I'm talking to you, but I'm also talking to me. Think about how we're influencing people because you are. You are influencing people. You are. Think about how you're doing that. Um, these people were influencing the people that Jude was writing to in a very negative way. So don't turn God's grace into a rationale for unholiness. God has called you to be holy, so be holy. Not to earn your salvation, but as an outworking of salvation that God has given to you. But maybe someone's here today you're not really a believer yet. Maybe your view of God's grace has been deficient to the point that you have missed the reason for salvation. It's to transform you. And so if you're not being transformed, as Paul says in that text I read earlier, renewed day by day, we might want to check our discipleship. And again, we have different growths of salvation and everything, but you should be able to look back and see growth in your life. And if you don't see that, that should concern you. And we should run back to Christ and say, God, cause us to grow. Cause us to be followers of you. And let me, let me give away the things I'm holding on to. So this is a long introduction to a short book that we're going to go through the next three weeks and kind of unpack the meat of it. But I wanted you to feel what was happening in the author, in the people, kind of the area around it. So as we look at the main point in the next few weeks, we can kind of get a good running start to that. But let us grow in grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Let us not be like these people and let the fact that we live in God's grace excuse our, the necessity for holiness. God has called you to transform you. Let him transform you. Well, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we can spend together today. Thank you for what you're doing. May we be men and women who are committed to growth in you and by your spirit's enablement. In Christ's name we do pray, amen.